Hello and welcome back to the podcast. This is Cameron and you're listening to the Nursing Crash Cart episode number 8 where we're going to bridge off our sedation podcast from last time and talk about both non-invasive support for breathing as well as invasive support, some terms to help familiarize yourself with the ventilator, and a few small bits of troubleshooting that you can do at the bedside. This entire podcast should, of course, be examined under the policies and procedures at your own facility. And, of course, make sure that your respiratory therapists are involved whenever you want to make any changes with positive pressure devices, which is a great time to point out that your respiratory therapists are fantastic resources when it comes to making like small or nuanced changes to help your patients or to answer any questions about ventilator settings and to help troubleshoot any alarms. Playing nice with your RTs will definitely gain you some respect in their eyes. They're going to appreciate that you value their specialized input, and it just continues to foster that that great team environment that we like in the ED so much. Today's podcast is going to follow a basic outline of covering some terms, information, and patho regarding the lungs. We'll talk about positive pressure ventilation, including the reasons we want to do it, the goals for it, and then some terms Uh, regarding all the different settings that you'll see, as well as information regarding the most, uh, the common types of ventilator modes you're going to be using in the ED. And then we'll finish up with a small amount of basic ventilator troubleshooting. So our concern with breathing in the ED is when there is an acute respiratory failure present. Even with chronic conditions, The situations where we're intubating or using non-invasive positive pressure, more often than not, will stem from an acute exacerbation of that chronic disease. Acute respiratory failure boils down to one simple thing. The pulmonary system is failing at maintaining proper levels of gas exchange. Your causes for acute respiratory failure kind of fall under two large umbrellas. If extrapulmonary and intrapulmonary, as you can likely imagine just from the word itself, extrapulmonary means the reason is coming from outside of the lungs, which can mean anything from like a neuro- neurologic injury, like a brain stem injury or a spinal cord injury or chest trauma that impedes the expansion of the lungs or that chicken bone foreign body stuck in the upper airway that's blocking airflow. So um, today we'll primarily be looking at intrapulmonary causes of respiratory failure, like COPD exacerbations, pneumonias, heart failure and pulmonary edema, and the all-encompassing ARDS, A-R-D-S, or Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. So the hallmark sign of crappy air exchange is hypoxemia, which at first glance you're going to likely see the patient just being wheeled in by EMS or walking in the front door, and you're just going to know with your gut that something is just not right with their breathing. Our concerning vital sign, of course, will be their SpO2, which will confirm the hypoxemia. Anything on room air under 92% should be considered hypoxemic until more information is gathered. Like someone who's a long-term COPD patient, They may very well live in the 88 to 92 range on home oxygen, which is perfectly fine to keep them there as long as there's nothing else acute that needs to be addressed. 
All right, so our patient is hypoxemic, and we need to figure out why, which will normally fall under three different kind of categories. You have a VQ mismatch, or VQ standing for ventilation perfusion mismatch, um, intrapulmonary shunting, and then hypoventilation of the alveoli. There's different classifications of respiratory failure, but rather than waste time trying to figure that out, our time in the ED is better spent stabilizing the patient, fixing any easily reversible causes, or at least preventing them from getting worse, and then getting that patient to the ICU or step down so that we can move on to the you know life-threatening toe pain that's been waiting in our lobby for the last six hours. So I'll briefly talk about each, what each of those three categories mean. Um, and this is something you'll likely have learned back in school or you will be learning if you're in school now when you're discussing the respiratory system. VQ mismatch simply means that part of the lungs are not perfusing and gas exchange is not taking place. It means that there is a mismatch between the ventilation and the blood flow. So as blood travels through the alveoli and the lungs, it expects to pick up a certain amount of oxygen and it's not. So when it travels from the lungs back into the heart in the pulmonary vein, there's less, less oxygen in the blood than what the body expects. And now we, we recognize this by seeing a lower than normal amount on our SpO2 monitor, on our, on our pleth. Shunting is kind of the extreme form of a VQ mismatch. It basically means that when blood has gone through the heart and it's reaching the aorta, that it hasn't participated in oxygen exchange. So as you can imagine, this is worse than not getting all the oxygen it expected. And this is normally because of some like, like severe atelectasis or something like a big empyema, that pus collection in the lung. Uh, lastly, we have that alveolar hypoventilation. This is when the body's metabolic needs aren't being met by the amount of oxygen that's being delivered to the alveoli. This is normally from extrapulmonary sources. It means the lung is functioning theoretically like it's supposed to, but for some reason, another part of the, the body is not letting the oxygen in, or you're just not getting enough O2 to the alveoli. So like if our patient has Guillain-Barre and their diaphragm's paralyzed, the lung's functioning like it's supposed to, but they sure as heck aren't getting enough O2 because that diaphragm is not helping, you know, pull back on the lungs and, and expand them. Same thing with like, um, people who do like high intensity interval training, the HIT uh, aerobics, because you're moving into that anaerobic range, that range when you're, when you're no longer using oxygen for metabolism and you're just sucking wind afterwards. It's because your body's trying to catch up to the metabolic needs of your alveoli. So you have that, that temporary state of hypoventilation of the alveoli and you're hyperventilating trying to keep up with it. Our assessment of the respiratory um, system and the respiratory failure, it has to be fast. And when there's any doubt, our interventions have to be aggressive. Um, this is a situation where mentation may be compromised. The patient may be restless, agitated, confused, um, or the failure may be due to something that's depressing the respiratory drive, like an opiate overdose, and the patient may have decreased LOC from that. Your cardiac assessment likely is going to show tachycardia, possibly dysrhythmias because of the hypoxia um, causing like an irritable heart tissue. And then skin color, you may see cyanosis, 
um, that kind of bluing of the skin. Typically, you'll see like an acrocyanosis, like of the 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 greater periphery area, like the fingers or the lips, things like that. Before you'll see it around the vital parts of the body. You may also see skin color that's becoming more pale from that body um, shunting blood to push the the more oxygenated flow in towards the vital organs. Respiratory wise, um, you're either going to see one of two things. Either it's going to be the you know tachypnic and dyspnic patient showing signs of an increased work of breathing, like they're shrugging their shoulders, um, they're doing tripoding, um, lots of accessory muscle use, the pursed lip breathing. And um, the other big extreme from that is if you have that opiate overdose, they may just have complete respiratory depression where they may only breathing a couple times a minute. You may see them in a complete depressed depressed state with kind of like that guppy breathing, um, very similar to like cardiac arrest patients who may have ROSC, but you're kind of wondering, you know, if they were just down a little too long kind of a deal. Um, continuing with the respiratory um, assessment, your lung sounds, you know, they could be all over the place. Um, that kind of snoring, sonorous ronchi sound can definitely be from infection. It can be from tightness, then just congestion in the lungs, like your COPD type patients. You're, of course, going to hear wheezing in those COPD patients as well. Um, same with asthmatics. Obviously, you're going you're to hear wheezing with them. Um, also sometimes you'll hear wheezing from extra pulmonary sources, especially if it's in the upper airway, like that chicken bone stuck in the airway. Um, you may end up hearing strider up near, like if you're listening to sounds up in the neck, you may hear some strider through there just because of the tightness, um, going around that foreign body. Um, and then of course with things like pneumonia, pulmonary edema, anything you're going to see like a backup or a collection of fluid in the lungs like that, be it infection or blood or the aspirated vomit, something, um, you may hear those crackles, that kind of snap, crackle, pop, like a Rice crispy sound when you're listening to the bases of the lungs. And then, of course, there's the other two um, that sometimes just don't get enough credit um, when you're doing your respiratory assessment, which would be diminished sounds, especially there in the bases. That's going to be very typical with all of these uh, kinds of patients, because you're, you're, if you have respiratory distress and you've got that poor perfusion and poor gas exchange, more often than not, it's there in the bases. So you may hear that diminished sounds, just the lung sounds just aren't as loud as they are, um, when you're over top of the, you know, the, the larger bodies of the lungs. And then, of course, you may hear absent sounds. And now sometimes people chalk that up to, well, I don't hear anything bad. I, that, that must be okay. Absent sounds are horrible. That could be your sign of complete collapse of that area. It can be your, um, you know, your tension pneumothoraxes. So absent sounds are an adventitious finding. They just don't sound like your, you know, crackles or wheezes or ronchi, but they are equally, if not more so, dangerous. So what is positive pressure ventilation? I guess first I have to talk about way the, the way the body normally breathes. If you picture like a 10 ml syringe in your hand and you're going to drop some meds, the first thing you do is, of course, you pull back, get some air, so you can push some air into the vial to create that extra space um, to make sure you're kind of getting that bubble-free fluid drawn into the syringe, right? So when you pull back on that plunger, the diaphragm of the syringe is sucking in air, and that's negative pressure as it's being sucked in 
not blown into the syringe. And our, our lungs are just like that. Our diaphragm and our ribs work together to create a vacuum to pull air into the lungs. Positive pressure, just as you can expect, is the opposite of this. It's when air is being forced or pushed into the lungs. And I say this because it's a very unnatural feeling and your patient isn't going to like it unless we take steps to help them. So we've already talked about the underlying categories as to why we're going to need positive pressure. So let's discuss kind of quickly what are some of the more common reasons we're going to use this in the ED. The absolute most common reason you're going to likely encounter uh, when you're going to encounter a need for positive pressure ventilation is going to be that COPD exacerbation. Normally, this is because of infection in the lung and the already stiff and poorly perfusing lungs of the COPD patient. They just can't keep up with the demands of the body because some part of the lung is now decreasing its ability to exchange gas. So this is going to fall under that VQ mismatch or shunting, depending on the severity of the exacerbation. Kind of in hand in hand with the COPD exacerbation is pneumonia. More often than not, an exacerbation of COPD um, is caused by infection. Even if it's not obvious on like a chest x-ray, you'll often see that your physicians will be covering um, the exacerbation like it's an infection with broad-spectrum antibiotics or respiratory-centered um, antibiotics just because COPD exacerbations most of the time come from an infectious source. So like the pneumonia is, is very similar to COPD exacerbations. You're going to have that impaired gas exchange in part of the lung. This case is just due to the infection. So you'll find that um, at least part or one decent size of the lung is going to be preventing that oxygen exchange. Otherwise, we're not really going to be concerned about respiratory failure. A normal, otherwise healthy, like 20-something-year-old patient doesn't have any comorbidities. A pneumonia is something they likely just go home, take some, <clears throat> you know, some Leviquin PO or something like that, and they'll be absolutely fine. Um, but when you have the older population, those who have lung injury to begin with, like COPD or cardiac um, issues like CHF, they have some kind of an impairment or comorbidity to begin with. These are the patients that are likely going to go, going to go downhill quick with pneumonia, and they're going to not be able to compensate nearly as well. Uh, the next disease process you'll likely see a lot of is that, that mentioned CHF, congestive heart failure. So exacerbations of CHF, they're going to be very similar to COPD and pneumonia in their initial presentation. Again, especially in that older patient with the lots of, you know, the comor comorbidities. The nice thing is all three of them, when we're treating them with positive pressure, it's all treated in a very similar manner because our goals are going to be the same. A CHF exacerbation causing respiratory distress is going to be a result of the left side of the heart having poor contractility or poor squeeze and blood's going to be backing up into the lungs. Remember that the right side of the heart, the backing up is going to lead to peripheral edema and the left side of the heart is going to back up into the lungs. The effect this has on the lungs is pulmonary edema. One hallmark sign of like a CHF exacerbation or pulmonary edema is that pink, frothy sputum from coughing up that blood-tinged and blood-filled fluid. Now, pulmonary, pulmonary edema can be caused by more than just CHF, um, but normally that's how we're going to see it um, in this kind of a setting. 
Um, trauma centers, you're going to see it a lot more often from, from blunt trauma to the chest, like steering wheel impacts or the ever popular, I was minding my own business when three guys jumped me with bat story. Um, where you're going to be aspirating fluid into the lungs, like our opiate overdoses, um, or near drowning patients too can also have pulmonary edema. And then lastly, somebody who may have been in the ED for a completely different reason, like our anemic patients, or even our trauma patients who are getting multiple blood transfusions, this can also cause pulmonary edema. Uh, the last kind of um, disease process we'll, we'll touch on here is the, that, that ARDS or ARDS that we were talking about before. Think of ARDS as kind of like a sepsis of the lung. There's that systemic inflammation and it's causing decreased gas exchange. Now the inflammation is just one sign of ARDS, but there are other physiological or pathological rather symptoms that are going to occur too. Um, the biggest one that we're going to care about with this is a loss of that surfactant, which is critical when trying to help the alveoli from sticking to each other and preventing atelectasis. Now, ARDS is something we don't often have to deal with in the ED because normally it's secondary to some other insult on the lung. Someone's initial diagnosis is rarely going to be ARDS, but it's, it's going to be a byproduct of some other lung injury. So with each of these scenarios, our goal with positive pressure ventilation is the same. We want to increase alveolar recruitment. Now, this is a fancy way of saying that we want to open alveoli that are stuck closed. We've already talked about why they were closed in each of those diseases we covered, right? There's fluid in the lung, infection in the lung, loss of surfactant or inflammation. Each of these block and close alveoli and prevent them from exchanging gas. So our treatment is to reverse that. When with recruitment... We want to open more alveoli and try to fix any VQ mismatch that may be happening. With a lot of diseases, the primary goal is, you know, fix that underlying cause. With respiratory distress, this isn't the case. Step one is always, always, always support the breathing. Our secondary goal is going to, you know, going to then be to fix that underlying cause. But we've got to support the body's physiological need for oxygen to allow these treatments to work. These are not treatments that are often quick fixes, unless it's something like a tension pneumo that you can, you know, needle decompress or throw in a chest tube at the bedside and fix a large mismatch like that. Something like a CHF exacerbation or pneumonia or a COPD exacerbation are normally not five to 10 minute turnaround times. This is why we need to support the breathing to let the body then recover with our additional treatments. Physicians are sometimes leery of jumping right into positive pressure ventilation, and there are some, you know, plenty of good reasons for that. But more and more studies are showing that non-invasive positive pressure early on leads to better outcomes and decreases mortality in these patients. Sometimes you can't turn these patients around before you have to intubate them. So don't be afraid to advocate for your patient and get a doc on board using some BiPAP to help the patient long before that decision has been made to intubate. Uh, you know, where I work, most of the physicians are great at using BiPAP early. And the number of patients that you'd swear would end up with a, a plastic cigar and get admitted um, to the ICU are instead getting admitted on a nasal cannula and going to a step down. Or maybe the, you know, the risk is still there, but they're going to the unit for that. 
But, you know, the, the number of patients that we see that turnaround on is not insignificant. Early and aggressive treatment is what the ED should be about. So our non-invasive options are really just BiPAP and CPAP. And more often than not, we just use BiPAP. So what's the difference between the two? Well, CPAP, the letters stand for continuous positive airway pressure. And BiPAP is bi-level positive airway pressure. This means that CPAP pushes air in at one continuous pressure level. It's like taking a vacuum and reversing it and then just shoving the end into somebody's mouth. Now, BiPAP is smarter than that, and that when someone is exhaling or they're not taking a breath, it provides a lower level of positive pressure called EPAP, or expiratory positive airway pressure. And then when it senses the patient taking a breath in, it's going to push the air at a higher level of pressure called IPAP, or inspiratory positive airway pressure. So think of it as that reversed vacuum being switched from low to high every time someone takes a breath and then back down from high to low when they're exhaling. This method is a bit easier for our patients to get used to, and it still provides a continuous level of at least some positive pressure. If you're familiar with ventilators at all and kind of positive pressure terminology, the expiratory pressure or EPAP of a BiPAP machine is just like our PEEP. Now with CPAP, since it's continuous pressure, that's also our CPAP. Our, our, our peep, our seep. Um, so CPAP is kind of equal to EPAP, which is kind of equal to peep, just roughly. Now there's two settings with, that we're going to care about with CPAP. You have pressure and FiO2. Then there's three settings with BiPAP. Your IPAP, your inspiratory, EPAP, your expiratory, and then the FiO2. And they are most often read to you in that order. So if someone says, start them on BiPAP 10 over 5 at 50, they mean... 10 of IPAP, 5 of EPAP, and 50% oxygenation. EPAP is what's going to help with our recruitment. And since recruitment is how we fix acute failure, which we measure by looking at hypoxemia, which we measure by looking at SpO2, we can then titrate EPAP to help with SpO2 or our PaO2 on a blood gas. EPAP is for alveolar recruitment and improving oxygenation. IPAP is titrated against the PaCO2 levels, so the carbon dioxide levels on your blood gas or if you're doing um, capnography at the bedside. We also use it to, we pretty much always use IPAP to increase volume or increase the ventilation of the patient. Now there are limits to positive pressure. We can't just increase numbers forever until we fix one vital sign as positive pressure in the chest means that the lungs are staying pressed open more, which is increasing ITP, which is intrathoracic pressure or that pressure in the chest cavity. Now this is going to push against your vena cava as well. So it's going to lead to decreased venous return, meaning our cardiac output is going to suck which is going to then in turn cause hypotension. So this is just a way of saying that there's a balancing game between breathing and circulation that has to be maintained when you're using positive pressure. 
So there's a lot of terms and knowledge required to become a wizard at ventilators. And we're just going to cover about a half dozen of these terms today that we really need to know to be able to understand what's happening with our patient and how to titrate. And then what we need to know to let the ICU know what's going on when we're calling report. So first is our mode which is going to normally be one of just a few options in the ED, unless you are boarding ICU patients for days, at which point the intensivists and pulmonologists have likely tweaked things to his or her liking. The second term is our rate, which is how often the machine is providing a breath during each minute. So a rate of 12 means 12 breaths per minute are being delivered by the ventilator. We use rate to adjust carbon dioxide levels. If someone's blood gas trends are showing that it's increasing in CO2, we're going to increase the rate so they blow off more carbon dioxide and then vice versa. If we see that their carbon dioxide levels are dropping, we're going to slow their rate down a little bit to make sure we're retaining some of that CO2. Uh, next one is our tidal volume. So when the machine is providing a breath, how big of a breath is it giving? A 40-kilogram, 4-foot-tall patient and a 140-kilogram, 7-foot-tall patient likely have very different lung capacities. So this is where we tell the ventilator just how much in milliliters to provide. We want to oxygenate the person without injuring their lung further. So if we were to give that 40-kilogram, 4-foot-tall patient the same amount of tidal volume as the 140-kilogram Seven foot tall patient, we are going to cause volume trauma to their lungs. So to provide a proper amount to not injure them, we want to base our tidal volume calculations off of ideal body weight. Now there's calculations that are out there based on height. And there's a ton of them online if you just want to Google an ideal body weight calculator for ventilators. A normal, otherwise lung healthy individual is going to be mechanically ventilated at around 10 milliliters per kilogram of ideal body weight. And is, as lung compliance is going down, so does our tidal volume. So a COPD patient, they may only get 8 mLs per kg of ideal body weight. And then our ARDS patient, they may only get 6 mLs per kg um, when we're ventilating their, their tidal volume. So these two values, rate and tidal volume, we multiply them together to get our minute ventilation or how much gas is being exchanged in the lungs over the course of one minute's time. CO2 in the blood varies with the amount of minute ventilation, which is why changing that rate affects the CO2 as it's effectively changing the minute ventilation of the patient. So that's one reason why we like to trend blood gases when somebody is on positive pressure. Uh, the next big setting we're going to care about is the FiO2 or the fractured of inspired oxygen, which is to say how much of the air they are inhaling is oxygen. If we want to get completely anal retentive, FiO2 is not a percentage, and expressing it that way is incorrect. We've sort of kind of adopted it as such for so long that it's become the acceptable way of stating an FiO2. So a patient who's breathing in 100% oxygen has an FiO2 of 1%. Room air being 21% oxygen is expressed as an FiO2 of 0.21. Again, while not correct, we just use percentages to make it easier. So instead of saying, oh yeah, they're on an FiO2 of 0.21, we just say they're on 21%. Or if they're at 100%, we don't say they have an FiO2 of 1, we just say they're an FiO2 of 
And then we have PEEP, which we talked a little bit before with our non-invasive positive pressure devices. And it stands for positive indexpiratory pressure or the positive pressure being maintained at the end of a breath. More PEEP, again, is going to mean more alveolar recruitment, but high levels of PEEP can also hyperinflate the alveoli and then rupture them. So the minimum amount of PEEP required to provide recruitment should be used. So our ventilator modes, they determine what kind of settings are static, what we can adjust, and then the three most common types that we're going to use are AC, SIMV, and pressure control. AC, or assist control, is likely the most common mode that you're going to see in the ED, and it allows us to change four settings. Rate, tidal volume, FiO2, and PEEP. With assist control, the patient is being forced breaths with the tidal volume we choose at a rate we choose with an oxygen level that we choose, providing a PEEP that we choose. Now, they can take breaths on their own, and when they do, the tidal volume that we've set is going to be pushed into the lungs as well. So if we have an assist control rate of 12, tidal volume 700, 12 times a minute, we are going to force 700 milliliters of air into the patient's lungs. If they are breathing on their own as well and they take a breath, breath number 13 there is going to get 700 mLs of air as well. So a person who has a respiratory rate that's greater than our set rate, the term we use for this is that they are breathing over the vent or they're taking spontaneous breaths. This is something good to know. We are calling report on these ventilated patients. When we first intubate someone in a paralytic still on board, we don't expect a person to be taking breaths on their own. But hours later, after that paralytic has run its course, if they still aren't taking breaths on their own, it can signify that the brainstem isn't doing its job from something like an anoxic brain injury or trauma. It's a concerning finding to not have somebody breathing over a ventilator. It doesn't always mean that's what it is, but it's something to be concerned about and it's something to mention, whether or not the patient is or is not breathing over the vent. Now, SIMV, which is synchronized intermittent mandatory ventilation, it's very, very similar to assist control. So we control the rate, we control the tidal volume, the FiO2, and the PEEP. The only difference is that when a patient takes a spontaneous breath, it doesn't provide a tidal volume. So the patient can pull in his or her own tidal volume with these breaths. But that set rate is still going to provide the amount that we determined. And then lastly, there's pressure support. So with our other two options, we were controlling the volume the patient receives. But in this case, the controlled settings are the peak inflation pressure and rate. So this means that when a breath is delivered, it's going to push air in until a specific level of pressure is pushed back. So someone who has a normal lung is going to end up automatically getting more air than someone who is in ARDS. So once that vent is pushing in the air, it's going to have that, that pushback from where it's filled the lungs. And it, once it hits a certain level, it stops pushing. So again, that, that patient, that healthy patient, it's going to be able to push a lot more air in, meaning they're going to get an appropriate level of tidal volume based on what their, their lung compliance is. 
and again, that orange patient or the COPD patient is going to get less because it's going to hit that pressure much sooner. So pressure support tends to be used for patients that have a higher degree of concerning for volume trauma with, with higher levels of, of tidal volume. So like your ARDS patient, pressure support with higher PEEP tends to be like your default mode for these ARDS patients. But again, every intensivist and pulmonologist um, kind of has their own little preferences or what they're comfortable with. So, um, you know, whatever they, they're, they're just, they're deciding on. This just lets you know what the vent is doing and kind of how, how it's helping to ventilate their lungs. So troubleshooting a ventilator should only be done when you have a good understanding of your patient settings, the mode, and only in collaboration with a physician or a respiratory therapist, except in those emergency situations. Some of the situations that you can safely troubleshoot or provide recommendations on, we're going to cover here. Ventilation, um, sorry, ventilators, even when you're in like assist control or SIMV, they like to remain at a specific pressure range. So if the pressure peaks above where it expects or it goes below where it expects, it's going to let you know with an alarm. Unless you're absolutely comfortable with a ventilator and its settings, don't just walk in the room and hit the silence alarm button. Most of those last for multiple minutes. And while, you know, it may just be absolutely nothing and the patient's fine, if it's something and you're not troubleshooting it quick enough, you have that alarm turned off for a minute. Nobody else knows that this patient is in here having problems. And two minutes later, it may be more significant than you know what to deal with. So when you come into that room and the ventilator's going off, again, unless you're comfortable, just let the alarm go and begin doing your troubleshooting. Because the ED is a team sport, it's going to let the others know around you that something is not right in that room. And they can come just check in on you. Hey, you doing okay? You need some help in here? Need me to get the doc? Need me to get the respiratory therapist? You know, if you need some extra hands, they can provide that for you. So, but if you walk in the room, hit the silence button and move on to something else, your patient may not be getting the proper breathing support that they require. Low pressure alarms, they tend to be the easiest ones to troubleshoot. The ventilator is not getting pressure back like it expects, which means, um, you know, instead of pushing air into the right spot into the lungs, it's pushing it somewhere else and not getting anything pushed back. So it can mean part of the circuit of the tubing between the vent and the patient has been disconnected or has a large leak or the patient wasn't restrained and are sedated, and they decided the best thing to do was to extubate themselves. So when you see that alarm, start at the patient. Is the tube in their mouth at the centimeter marking at the lip that you expect it to be? Is it secured to the patient? Is the ventilator tubing connected to the endotracheal tube? Is the cuff balloon inflated? And then if those things are all fine, work your way back now towards the vent. So you follow that tubing back. Are there any air leaks or there spots that are disconnected? If not, and the alarm continues, get some help. And then disconnect the vent from the ET tube and try to bag them. Are they bagging normally? Do you see the chest rise when you bag them? If not, something is not right with the tube. Hit your staff alert or your code button and be ready to remove that endotracheal tube and then just bag them with a mask. Sometimes if the... You know, the cuff is busted and it's not an appropriate size tube for the patient um, and they're just not getting enough pressure and it's just leaking all around it or the tube has come um, up too high. It's not 
far enough down into the cords or past the cords, um, you may have that leak just around everywhere and you're not getting enough ventilation. Um, so, you know, be ready to, to support that airway until they can be reintubated or the intubation can be confirmed again. High pressure alarms mean the vent's trying to push in that set tidal volume, but something's pushing back hard against it, preventing it from, from pushing it all in until it hits that peak um, pressure level that it, it, that's set to alarm at. So this can be from just secretions or mucus that's built up in the trachea, which may just require some suctioning, or it can be because the patient's biting down on the tube, um, resulting in poor flow to the lungs, or it can be from a patient who's just fighting against the tube, coughing, bucking against the vent. We call this asynchrony um, against the vent. So again, positive pressure is not natural, and a person's normal response is to fight against it. Now, we can combat this with sedation and analgesia, preferably with analgesia first sedation, right? So once you see that alarm and it's signifying that the peak pressures are higher than expected, again, look at the patient. Do they look sedated? Are they moving all their extremities, shaking their head back and forth, coughing? Are they seizing? Or do they look relaxed and there's no visible sign of discomfort? If they look uncomfortable, step one is up the sedation. Of course, you need to make sure you're looking at things like your vital signs. If someone's pressure is 70 over 40, they're not on pressors right now, and you're going to up their sedation, you know, you may want to consult your, your docs first with this and make sure that they're comfortable or, or you have something else you're going to add in terms of a, a vasopressor to help with their, their blood pressure um, in the meantime. So if they, if there's no visible sign of discomfort, then you want to look at that mouth. Is it clamped down around the tube? Maybe they just have some kind of a muscle spasm in the, or they're, or they are seizing and you just can't see it and they're, they're biting down against that tube. Um, there are plenty of just bite block devices out there. Do not stick your hand in there and try to force their mouth open. Don't stick your fingers in between their teeth trying to pry it open. There are plenty of devices out there that are meant for this. Uh, the big thing you can probably do though, again, sedation. Sometimes just a little bit more sedation and you can kind of relax everything to the point where we're going to unclamp. Again, if everything then looks okay, or especially if this is somebody who's had a lot of secretions and has required a lot of suctioning in the past, suctioning them out using the policy wherever you work is going to be your next step. So if all of these things don't fix the problem, just get some more help in the room. Nobody's going to fault you for being protective of your patient's airway. I know that I read somewhere, and I'm pretty sure your other staff members did too, that breathing is somewhat important. That's all for today's episode. I know we covered a lot, so this may require another listen or two if you want to absorb all the information, especially through all my little flubs here. I want to thank you all for the continued emails and messages. I appreciate all the feedback I've been getting. If you want to contact me with any questions, concepts or ideas that you'd like to hear on the show or for any other reason you can email me at edcrashcard at gmail.com or you can follow me on twitter at edcrashcart and you can visit me on the web at edcrashcart.com you can also check out other episodes using itunes or stitcher and searching for the nursing crash cart so thank you all again for listening and now go out there and aggressively protect your patient's breathing